Stay up to date and engage with the financial world. You're listening to the Wall Street Millennial Podcast. What's up, everyone, and welcome back to the Wall Street Millennial Podcast. On this weekly podcast, we cover everything that happened in the business and investing world over the previous week. I'm your host, Ryan. That's your host, James. And uh, another week and another week of massive losses and volatility in the markets today. Um, the uh, S&P was, finished the week down about 2%. The NASDAQ was down more than 3%. And uh, some historic volatility uh, during the process. James, do you have any any major takeaways from this week? Yeah, I think it's kind of just the same old thing happening week after week. We had the um, the inflation report. So last week, or was it two weeks ago, we also had the OPEC decision to cut output. We talked about that on the previous um, podcast, saying that it was widely anticipated OPEC would cut as much as a million barrels a day. Um, it turned out they actually got 2 million barrels a day. So that was more than expected. And that's um, that's only increasing fears of higher inflation uh, down the line and higher interest rates. Yeah, I think uh, I think over the past few days, probably the biggest catalyst in the markets was that CPI report that you mentioned um, on Thursday. The S&P was initially down 2%. On the open, so the CPI report was released at 8:30, and then at 9:30, when markets opened, everything opened down, and S&P was at a, a two-year low, and everyone thought it was going to be Armageddon, basically. But then it actually rallied 5.6% from that level and finished the day significantly up. Um, and then, of course, on Friday, gave up all those gains pretty much. And uh, in terms of the numbers of the actual CPI print. Uh, Inflation was hotter than expected. Prices were 8.2% higher versus a year ago in September, which was 0.1% above expectations, although it was 0.1% lower than the August print. Core inflation, which is basically inflation but cutting out food and energy costs, which are supposedly more volatile, was 6.6%, 0.3% above last month. So that's a significantly a significant increase from last month. And the biggest, the biggest factor in that was rent, accounting for about 40% of the increase in core inflation. Um, so I think that the interesting, the interesting piece here is that uh, basically the entire increase in core inflation was rent, and headline inflation actually decreased a little bit. And we know that rent is actually a pretty lagged indicator of uh, what's going on in terms of what the Fed what the Fed looks at. Yeah, and one of the big reasons for that is sort of the strange way in which the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics measures rent. Um, you might think the easiest way is just to go on Zillow or wherever and look at what people are actually paying to rent homes. But what they what the BLS does instead is they use owner's equivalent rent. Owner's equivalent rent is they call up a bunch of you know, a random survey of homeowners, and they ask them, if you were to rent out your home that you live in today, how much do you expect it to rent for? And 
most people, if they're just living, they own their own home, they're living in their house, uh, they're not really paying close attention to what the market price of rent is in their neighborhood. So they're slow to catch on. Um, if there's a big increase in rent, uh, if you're not even paying attention to the rental market, you won't even notice it for like another few months. So that's why the owner's equivalent rent that they use is a lagged indicator. So kind of in the beginning of the year, six, nine months ago, rents were increasing a lot, but the owner's equivalent rent was not increasing because of that lag. Now the rents have already increased to a much higher level and the increases are slowing down, but because of the lag nature of the owner's equivalent rent, we're seeing that big increase now. So just based on the nuances of how they measure it, uh, the rent, the, the rent numbers are, they're lagged such that inflation was really, the reported numbers of inflation were too low, you know, six, nine months ago, and they're too high today when you compare it to the economic reality of how much people are actually paying. Yeah, that's a really interesting point about the about the lagged indicator. I know, like in real estate, things can be, can be extremely lagged. Uh, like right now, over the past six months, as as in interest rates and mortgage rates have increased to uh, basically as higher than they were since higher than they've ever been since the two thousand eight financial crisis. Um, but like property values have not decreased commensurately with that. They're only they're only just now starting to go down in, re in response. So yeah, real estate price, real estate, um, numbers can be extremely lagged in terms of, especially when you're talking about people's sentiment and, uh, human behavior, like the, uh, um, owner's equivalent rent surveys. Yeah. And that's, is kind of one of the, this, the fact that this lagged, uh, real estate, um, issue is the main driver of core inflation. Um, this is, kind of gives credence to the thinking uh, that a lot of people are coming around to that we have hit peak inflation or we are very close to hitting peak inflation and we should start to see the numbers coming down over the coming months. And one thing we can look at, which kind of hammers that point home is um, the tips bonds. So the U S treasury has two different types of bonds. They have the regular nominal bonds where you, know, you, you buy it for like a 3%, 4% interest rate or whatever, and then they pay you that fixed amount of 3% per year. And at the end of five years or 10 years or whatever, you get your principal back. Um, and it's all nominal and not adjusted for inflation. But they also have the TIPS bond um, and TIPS stand, stands for Treasury Inflation Protected Security. So this is a bond that is indexed to the CPI. So if inflation is high, the CPI increases, the value of your bond, meaning the interest payments you receive, as well as the principal amount you eventually get back at maturity, that increases in line with inflation. And what's really interesting about um, looking at the TIPS bonds versus the nominal bonds is you can... Um, you can... Um, subtract the tips yield from the nominal yield to get the market's expectations for future inflation. And we did that here. So um, these two rows here are the interest, the current interest rates for nominal treasury bonds and the inflation index treasury bonds. Um, as of October 13th, these are just directly from the treasury department's website. 
and um, for the various maturities that they offer. So if you look at this, um, the yield curve is, is pretty flat. And for the nominal bonds, uh, five years through 30 years, the interest rate is a little over 4%. For the um, inflation index bonds, it's a little under 2%. So the difference between the nominal and the inflation index is the market's expectations of future inflation. And so you subtract them and then you get expected inflation. So for the five-year bond, um, this is the expectation of average inflation over the next five years. And it's about, it's 2.44%. And then even if you look at it's, it's almost the same as you go down the yield curve um, for 30 years, it's 2.33%. But this is you know really surprising because um, as Ryan just mentioned earlier, the most recent CPI uh, number was more than 8%. But the expectation for average inflation over the next five years is 2.4%. Um, so that means if we're, if we're at 8% now and we're going to average 2.4% over the next five years, that means that people are expecting inflation to decrease down to the 2% level very quickly and then maybe go even under the 2% level. Um, so how is that possible? How could we get um, from such a high level of inflation uh, down pretty much to the Fed's target within a very short period of time? I think the main reason for this um, these low inflation expectations is that people think the Fed hiking interest rates is going to uh, is going to cause a massive recession, and that recession is going to be um, very disinflationary to the point where the Fed is willing to crush the economy in order to tamp down inflation. Yeah, but I mean, more than eight percent right now, down to two and a half percent plus or minus average over the next five years. And that seems pretty extreme for the market to be expecting that much of a decline in order to bring the average down so far. Yeah. And one thing, one thing that's interesting about that is um, we're actually working on a video on this that should be out within the next few days. Uh, Ray Dalio, um, a billionaire hedge fund manager who gives a lot of commentary about uh, inflation and, interest rates and things of that nature. He recently gave an interview um, talking about this very issue. And he said that the Fed basically has to make a trade-off of how much do we want to hurt the economy uh, versus how much do we want to decrease inflation. And his point was that over the past 10, 20 years um, of interest rates of interest rates decreasing and of the Fed printing trillions and trillions of dollars through their various QE programs ever since the financial crisis in 2008, the total amount of debt in the U.S. has exploded. So currently, if you look at government, state and local, um, plus corporate and household debt all combined, the U.S. has $68 trillion of total debt, which is um, more than three times GDP. So if you have $68 trillion of debt, a 1% increase in interest rates means a $68 billion increase in annual interest expense across the entire economy. And he said that we've gotten to the point where as a nation, we're so indebted that 
if you rose, if you increase interest rates to, you know, five, six, seven percent, which is what you probably need to really get inflation down, that's going to cause, you know, a massive financial crisis in like a Great Depression. So the Fed knows that and they're going to make a trade off where they will start increasing interest rates um, and it will cause a recession. Uh, unemployment will go up. Um, and people will have less spending power. So you will get a small decrease in inflation. But once it gets too painful, the Fed will reverse course halfway, and then they'll start QE again and start buying bonds again. And then that's going to save the economy from going into a real like Great Depression level event. But it also means that they're not going to get all the way down to 2%. And he said he thinks kind of a reasonable estimate for inflation over the next foreseeable future is somewhere in the four to five percent range, um, and that's basically the max of what the Fed will be able to achieve uh, while avoiding an extremely painful recession. Now, if Ray Dalio is right, inflation is going to be a lot higher than the market's pricing in, um, and I tend to I, I tend to agree with his view. Uh, it just seems kind of ridiculous to think that we're going to achieve an average of two point four percent inflation over the next five years when we're starting from such a high level. So if that is the case, if Ray Dalio is right, then you're much better off um, holding these um, tip bonds, these inflation index bonds, uh, rather than the nominal ones. Because, I mean, so the, the tips bond is currently, um, if you look at the iShares website, they're the one who run this ETF. Um, it has an average maturity of 2.4 years, 2.4 years, and the real yield is 2%. So whatever inflation is, you get that plus 2%. So if we're, if inflation is going to stay at five-ish percent for the foreseeable future, you're getting 7% a year. Um, the nominal bond um, at this maturity only gives you, I think, a little over 4%. So uh, it, it just seems... Uh, I think I think the market is far too optimistic uh, on how fast the Fed is. Well, I mean, optimistic or pessimistic, however you want to look at it. Um, they're far too optimistic of how fast the Fed will be able to decrease inflation. So what I'm hearing you say is that there is a pretty big market uh, dislocation in terms of what the inflation reality is and the spread between the tips bonds and the nominal bonds. So, I mean, is there a way to take advantage of that? Like, how do we make money on that? Will we buy tips and lever it up or what? Yeah, so you can buy the tips. There's there's a few different ETFs. There's like the STIP one we just showed. There's also a, um, there's also a, another one called LPTZ. And this is, it's the same thing. It's also tips, but this one is 15 years. Um, so this one's actually a little more risky than the, the previous one because it's longer duration, but it's the same idea that it will protect you from inflation. So um, clearly, uh, if you hold this view, you should not own the nominal treasuries, but you should own the um, inflation in the, the tips ones. And then if you want to lever it up, what you could do is you could buy a bunch of this ETF or the other one, right? So say you buy the short-term tips ETF, you buy a ton of this, 
and then you get seven percent um a seven percent yield on that and then what you would do is you would um this is the nominal treasury etf um at a similar maturity but it's not inflation adjusted and this one pays about four ish percent so if you long you buy a bunch of the inflation protected one and then short a bunch of a the nominal one you collect a profit which is the difference in the interest rates so you're making seven percent um, from your long position in the tips um, the tips ETF and then you have to pay out four percent for your um, uh, for your short position in the nominal ETF so you'd get like a three percent spread of profit assuming inflation stays high. So, yeah, and the only way that that spread could dry up or become negative is if inflation were to go below, go much below 2%, right? Because the real the real yield on the tips is inflation plus 2%. So it yeah. has to be at about 2% in order for it to be equal to the 4% nominal yield of that short-term treasury bond ETF right now. Yeah, basically, you would, have, you would need inflation to go below the Fed's target um, for this for you to lose money doing and what very I just quickly described. too within the next couple yeah. of years. Because it's only two and a half years um, average duration. So within the next two and a half years, that means the Fed would have to, you know, really slam on the brakes and go way below 2%, which I think sounds kind of ridiculous given that we're at 8%. They're having so much trouble bringing that down at all. You really think they can bring it down to below 2%? Um, so that's kind of a, I thought it's kind of interesting. You know, when I first looked into it, I was like very surprised that, how attractive the yield you can get on the tips is compared to the nominal. So this seems like a, v- a very interesting kind of market market dynamic, but is it, is it more than that? Like, could you actually implement a long short strategy where the, um, you know, where the, where your, where your collateral would make it so that the 3% spread or whatever it is right now is actually worth it. Especially when you can, when you consider the alternative of, stocks or something else that maybe if inflation does get get lower then stocks might rally yeah so this is um you're only making three percent on whatever however amount you long and then short right so you long say you long a hundred dollars of the stip and then short a hundred dollars of this shy um nominal etf you would make 3% on that. So for every $100 you put in, you only get $3 a year, um, which is, you know, not, not a huge return. Uh, to what extent you can leverage, you can use leverage. Um, that depends on which, you know, that depends on your broker. Uh, I think a lot of brokers, the amount of leverage that they allow you to take on is dependent on how much money you have. Like if you have more than $250,000, you can, use a portfolio margin um, and then you can get, you could leverage a position like this up to 10 times. Uh, For most brokers, if you didn't have a portfolio margin, so if you had less than $250,000, you could probably only do two to three times, Um, right? So if you did 10X leverage, that would get you 30% a year, two to three X leverage, that would get you um, like uh, six to 9% per year. So I mean, it's not a, not a lot of money because it's only a three percent difference in spread. But it yeah, it just depends on 
what your situation is with your broker. Yeah, that's very interesting. Even even if it's, you know, even if you don't end up actually doing anything with it, it's very interesting to and, see. And I think, and I also think that instead of, um, even if you you don't want to do something crazy with like longing the one and shorting the other, you can just, I mean, if you're just going to buy, like if, if you're scared of the stock market, uh, you don't want to invest in stocks, but, you know, at the same time, you don't want to hold cash because you are um, losing to inflation as the purchasing power of your dollars decrease, just buying the STIP or, I mean, there are, there are a few different ETFs, uh, one of the similar ones. Um, and then you can get 2% real yield and it's investing in something like this is the only way uh, you can guarantee with 100% certainty that you will be inflation, uh, whatever inflation ends up being over the next few years. Um, so, yeah, I think just based on your own risk tolerance, uh, if you're more conservative, um, it might be worth just if, if you, you know, you, you think the stock market is still too volatile for you to jump in. Maybe you, you know, you park your money in something like this and collect that 2% real yield and um, wait for wait for an opportunity to get back into the stock market. Yeah, so maybe... If nothing else, like if you're if you're deciding between certain types of bonds, make sure you don't choose the make sure you don't choose the nominal over the tips. At, yeah, at I think least. absolutely. I think based on the um, based on how how they're priced, uh, I think that's the the ones like this are these tips ones are definitely more attractive. All right. So maybe stepping back from from macro stuff for a second, there is also a very big development in single stocks uh, over the past few days. And that was Kroger, one of the country's biggest grocers, agreeing to buy Albertsons and both boards unanimously approving of the deal. Yeah, so this is Albertsons. It is the fourth largest grocery store company in the U.S. Uh, And just on Friday, uh, before market opens, it was announced Kroger, the second largest grocery store company in the U.S., announced that they would be acquiring Albertsons for $34.10 per share. Um, And then usually whenever uh, a stock is announced that it will be acquired by another company for a premium, uh, the stock price increases, right? So $34.10 a share is a lot more than $26.21. So why did the stock go down instead of going up to $34? So this is a a very interesting situation. Um, So this is Thursday. On Thursday, there was a lot of reporting, speculation in the media on like CNBC and whatever saying Kroger is almost about to make an acquisition of Albertsons. So people kind of knew that it was coming. Uh, but it wasn't officially announced until Friday before market open. And uh, when the deal was officially announced on Friday, the stock gave up almost all of the gains, right? So this is before the rumors. It's only up 2%. And 2622 is a significant discount to the $34.10 that Kroger um, is going to pay to acquire them. And then just kind of to look at the numbers here, um, this is the acquisition price, the current price. It's, uh, if you, if you buy the stock now and assuming the deal goes through, you make a 30% gain. Um, 
But what is interesting, which uh, is that in conjunction with this deal, Albertsons also announced a special dividend of $6.85 per share payable as of October 24th. So that's in a couple of weeks. So if you buy the stock now, hypothetically, you would get this $6.85 per share dividend. Now, this $6.85 dividend will be netted off the acquisition price that Kroger is paying. So they're not going to be paying $34.10. They're going to be paying... Um, they're going to be paying six eighty five less than that. So why does this matter, right? If you own the stock, yeah, I get this special dividend now, but then Kroger is going to decrease the purchase price by the exact um, by the exact same amount. So in net net, it, it shouldn't matter, right? Well, it actually does matter, and I think Albertson's uh, management team was actually pretty genius with this move uh, with the special dividend because so remember it's a thirty percent return, but then decrease the uh, 685 of special dividend from both the numerator and the denominator and your um, net return increases to 41%. So it's a huge increase, right? A 30% return to a 41% return. And the reason that is, is because um, you, it doesn't really, um, the amount of capital you have to invest to get one share of Albertsons is now is now much lower, right? Because uh, the share of Albertsons costs twenty six twenty one, but because you know within a few weeks you're going to get this six eighty five back, it really only costs you nineteen thirty six. So you need less upfront capital to buy each share effectively, which makes your net return higher, assuming the deal goes through. So the point is, um, this is a very attractive uh, premium, a 41% premium basically to where the shares are trading now. And this begs two questions. One, why is the premium so high? Two, why did the stock pump up so much here just to give up all of the gains? Um, we'll answer the, the first question first. So uh, typically when a, um, a buyout premium is very high, uh, that is because people don't expect the deal to go through, typically because uh, the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, might say this is going to be anti-competitive. You're going to form a monopoly, so we're going to try to block the deal. And that is uh, very much so the case um, with the Biden administration. Uh, they hired a new FTC chair who is extremely aggressive in terms of antitrust. For example, um, early, a few months ago, Facebook, well, Meta now, tried to acquire this tiny company called Within Unlimited, a VR studio. They make some VR studio app that I've never heard of, and I think most people have probably never heard of. I mean, this is like a, Within Unlimited is like a tiny company. Uh, it's like nothing. And then they're even suing Meta to try to stop it. So that just shows, you know, how extreme uh, the FTC is. Any deal they will try to block. So there's a pretty good chance that they're, they'll try to block the Kroger Albertson deal. To that point, though, speaking of things that people have never heard of, depending on which part of the country you live in, you may never have heard of Kroger or Albertsons at all, right? Like they're like the the grocery industry is extremely fragmented, and even though Kroger is the second largest one, it still has a, I think, less than twenty percent or just about twenty percent market share, right? And Albertsons is even less. 
So, so Kroger is 8%. Albertsons is, uh, you know, like 5%. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, 8% and 5%. So the two of them together would only be about 13%. And it'd still be a distant second to Walmart. Yeah, Walmart is 25%. And this is just grocery within Walmart. I mean, if you included the all the other stuff they sell, this would be huge. But just the grocery portion within the Walmart is way bigger even than Kroger and Albertson combined. So, yeah. so you, I guess is, you, could, you could make the argument that making a stronger number two in the industry could actually be pro-competitive, right? In terms of taking away some of the power from Walmart's overwhelming dominance compared to everyone else. Yeah, the thing is, though, I think with this, given how, um, I mean, if you just look at some of the lawsuits that the FTC, I mean, the kind of this, this within unlimited one is kind of one of the extreme ones, but I think the current uh, FTC is very extreme and they probably will sue to block anything. The good thing is though, even if they sue to block the deal, uh, you can take it to court um, and then you can overrule. If the judge agrees with you, you can overrule the FTC. Uh, and that is what happened a, a few years ago. Um, if you remember the big thing with AT&T acquiring uh, Time Warner, the um, that was under President Trump at the time, and then the FTC was very against that. They said it would decrease competition for a variety of reasons, uh, and they sued to block the deal. And then AT and T took it to court, and then went through like a two-year court proceeding. But eventually, they won, and then the judge overruled the FTC. So if they really want the deal to happen, um, and given the market share doesn't seem seem that extreme. Um, I think that they, they probably have a pretty good chance of, of winning in court. Um, and the other, and it's a very nice return if it does happen. And I think another thing to consider is, so why did the stock increase so much here, um, but then give up all the gains here? So on Friday, the, the market was, was also down a lot in general. Um, I mean, if you look at the S, yeah, the S&P tanked. Um, so maybe this was just kind of general fears in the market, uh, people getting margin called, things of that There's nature. Profit taking to fund losses elsewhere in the market. Yeah, it's very, very much possible. Um, and then because it really, and if you're looking at, I mean, it's only up two percent. So uh, the market is pricing in almost zero probability that that this deal goes through. I mean, this is just like, I mean, this is evidence of a very inefficient market. It increases. 11% here on the rumor, the rumor is confirmed and then it decreases 8%. You know, how do you explain this? So for full disclosure on, on Friday, I bought, you know, a few shares, a very small position in Albertsons um, on Friday as it was tanking. Cause I just saw that, you know, a 34 10 buyout price uh, and the stock tanking so much, I couldn't figure out why is it tanking. And um yeah, and also to, to Ryan's point, even the two companies combined is much smaller than Walmart. So I think if this goes to court, they probably have a pretty good legal standing. So what are some of the arguments for and against the competitive process? And like, what would what would the implications for the combined business be if the if they were to end up gaining approval? So the like would, help, um, would to, so. Yeah, efficiencies. 
Yeah, so um, Albertson, or, um, no, Kroger, uh, when they announced the acquisition on Friday, uh, they put out a big lengthy statement um, saying why this acquisition is good and why it's actually going to be good for consumers, et cetera. Um, and their points are that because um, they will now own so many more stores, um, that increases the route density, right? So if you have a big distribution center somewhere, and then within the, you know, within a certain area, say there's like 10 Albertson stores and 10 Kroger stores, and then each one has its own distribution center. Um, if you merge the two companies, you could close down one of the distribution centers and just have one big one serving all 20 stores, and that will be cheaper. Also, they say they can get better negotiating leverage um, for their from their suppliers because now they're they'll be you know almost double well they'll be so much bigger that they, they get better negotiating leverage. Um, and then thirdly, they also both Albertsons and Kroger have a lot of private label brands. You know, like you go into the store, you get like the I don't know, it's like the Kroger branded ketchup or the Albertson branded ketchup, which is like half the price of the Heinz ketchup. All right. And then so they uh, manufacture that themselves or it might be a, a contract manufacturing thing, but there's also a benefit to scale um, if they can kind of consolidate that portfolio of private label products that, that supposedly um, will increase efficiency. And then they're saying that there's going to be so much efficiency uh, with combining these two companies together. We can, you know, some of that efficiency will go to higher profits for us, which is why I wanted to do the deal. But there's so much efficiency that even after us taking our profit, the prices are still going to be lower for consumers. Um, so that is their uh, their pitch of why this thing will actually lower prices and be good for consumers. What about in the areas where they, where they, where, um, Albertsons and Kroger's operate in the same areas. What's going to happen to areas where there's an Albertsons across the street from a Kroger? Like, are they going to have to do anything about that to appease the regulators? Yeah. So they, they've said that they will potentially, um, will almost certainly be asked to divest some of the stores. So exactly in that type of situation, you have, you know, one town has one Kroger. And also when you say Kroger and Albertsons, both of these companies actually own uh, many different brands. So, I mean, like Kroger owns like Ralph's, Dillon's, King Supers, uh, Albertsons owns ACME, Shaw's, Jewel. So like depending on where where you are in the country, uh, you might see, you know, you have like a Shaw's branded store. Uh, you might not know that that's owned by Kroger, but they own like a ton of different regional brands. Uh, that's kind of an aside, but say you have one Kroger owned store, one Albertson owned stores, and those are like the only two stores in the neighborhood, uh, which is unrealistic because there's almost certainly a Walmart there too. But anyway, and then if the the fear from the regulator is that once you know the combined entity now owns both of the stores, they shut down one of them, and then now that there's only one store left in that town, they can price gouge the people. Um, so that is a legitimate concern. But they said what they're willing to do is in certain areas, in towns where that situation exists, they will spin off, they will divest those stores. Um, and they said, so Albertsons owns uh, 2,300, uh, about 2,300 stores in total. They said that um, 
approximately 100 to 375 of the stores. So say about 10% of the stores, the Albertson stores will be in that situation and they're willing to divest those stores um, to appease the regulators. And how that would work mechanically is that, um, so it's, you know, it's um, $34.10 is the acquisition price. Uh, minus the special dividend. So it's really $27.25. Yeah, $27 uh, per share is the acquisition price. And say 10% of the stores have to be divested. So what they'll do is they'll decrease the, um, they'll decrease the acquisition price by about 10%. They have some formula they'll use, but say about 10%. So you decrease that $27 down to $24. And then the existing Albertsons shareholders will get that $24, but they will continue to own um, that 10% of stores that they had to divest, which will be worth about $3 per share. Um, So that's, so instead of, giving up your entire Albertson share to get $27 in cash. You basically give up 90% of your Albertson share to get $24 in cash. Now, from the perspective of the Albertson's shareholders, it doesn't make much difference because it's only about 10% of the stores would be uh, in this situation. But hopefully this is, this is something where they can appease the regulators and, and get the deal through. Yeah, it seems like, it seems like a, Pretty interesting risk reward profile here, and uh, as Jim Cramer says, there's always a bull market somewhere. Maybe this is this is one of them. Uh, just in the past couple of days. Speaking of where uh, bull bull and bear markets, uh, I want to I want to discuss with you, James, a little bit about semiconductor stocks because uh, for anyone who's owned stocks like Micron or Nvidia or AMD, which is probably a lot of retail investors. Um, Things have been pretty brutal, especially brutal over the past uh, since the beginning of 2022, and some more developments to add more pain to the fire. And just in the past couple of days, on Friday, the Commerce Department announced new measures restricting the sale of and the export of advanced semiconductors for use in, in supercomputers to China, which is a huge export market for companies like Nvidia and uh, Intel, and. Um, not only just the semiconductors, but also uh, equipment for manufacturing semiconductors. So this goes back to the uh, the dynamic of trying to um, fight the the rise of China's domestic chip building uh, infrastructure and their ability to challenge the U.S. in terms of technology. But uh, that obviously sent all the exporting semiconductor companies in the U.S. their stocks down, and uh, right now the semiconductor index, the semi, the Philadelphia Semiconductor Index is down almost 50% just since the beginning of 2022. And if you look at individual stocks, NVIDIA is down almost two-thirds. AMD is also down almost two-thirds just since the beginning of 2022. Micron's down almost by almost half. And uh, it's pre- pretty much everywhere you look, it's just mar- market carnage. There's also some, also some other factors going into that as well that have been happening over the past few months, like decreased PC demand. But uh, I was just thinking like with stocks down this much in a cyclical, in a very cyclical industry, when's the bottom going to hit? And when's, when can we think about 
getting back in to take advantage of the next cycle? Yeah, I think uh, s- semiconductors is, is one of the uh, most interesting ones. I think it, it's certainly not for the faint of hearts uh, to be investing in semiconductors because it's very much prone uh, to the boom-bust cycle. Um, Micron, I think, is is the most interesting of the group because they, they make the DRAM and NAND memory, um, memory chips, and DRAM is made to industry specifications. Uh, that means that they're all the same, right? There's three big producers of DRAM. It's Micron, Samsung, and SK Hynix. Because they have to be built to industry standards, uh, a DRAM from any three of those companies is exactly the same. So it's um, it, that creates a situation where you have a, a market price of DRAM that's very transparent. And because of that transparency, it's prices are very quick to adjust uh, based on shifts in supply and demand. So Micron is always uh, the canary in the coal mine. When the chip market is going up or going down, you see Micron moving first. Um, and you see they have these, these massive boom-bust cycles, right? So this is when uh, the computers were first becoming a thing. You had a huge increase in demand. Uh, and then they overbuilt capacity and then prices tanked. Same thing happened here. Same thing happened here. Same thing happened here. Right? Every few years they go through this this massive uh, boom-bust cycle. And uh, the past couple of years was, was no exception. During the pandemic, there was also a massive boom cycle because everybody was buying a new um, PC to work from home. People had more time at home, so everyone was buying a new gaming PC. Uh, so demand for DRAM skyrocketed and then uh, supply is fixed in the short run. It takes a couple of years to build a new DRAM factory. So you have this massive increase in demand and then prices shoot to the moon. And then, then, then Micron makes you know obscene amounts of money then the capacity finally comes back online, the demand is met, and then it tanks. And that's, we're seeing the beginnings of that now. And I mean, if you look at, um, you see revenue uh, and profits increase substantially in 2021. Uh, and if you look at the quarterly, it's it's starting to come down. Um, both revenue and net income here are starting to come down. But uh, it is expected to get a, a lot worse. I think in, in the most recent uh, earnings call, Micron CEO said, yeah, think, things are getting bad. They cut their CapEx budget uh, for the next fiscal year by 50% because they're trying to conserve cash because they know that they're, they're probably going to start losing money soon as uh, DRAM prices tank. Now, as this relates to the other um, semiconductor stocks, so DRAM is the most uh, fast-moving but the other ones, like the CPUs and the GPUs, those are less commoditized. So it takes a little bit more time to, to start to see demand roll, um, to start to see prices decrease. Um, so if we look at, for example, Taiwan Semiconductor, which is the largest manufacturer of um, CPUs and GPUs, uh, they had a similar kind of boom-bust cycle here. Uh, where the stock skyrocketed, and now it's given up almost all of those gains. Um, and if you look at the numbers, though, the numbers are still increasing uh, because there's there's a bit of a lag uh, because they're not as commoditized. So it takes a few quarters for everything to go through the system and for the revenue and profits to actually start decreasing. But the market is forward-looking, 
and the stocks have already tanked in anticipation of even though they're at, even though the most recent quarter was a, a record quarter in terms of both revenue and net income, people know, you know, this is the last, this is like the last hurrah, you know, this is the last good quarter and things are going to start tanking, tanking very quickly. And I think one, one thing um, that's very interesting to see like 2017, 2018, 2019 revenue growth was like 3%, 5%, 3%. So it kind of grows three to 5% a year in normal times. 2020, it grew 25%. 2021 grew another 18%, right? And then here in 2022, it's growing 40, 48%, right? So this is this is clearly unusual growth. Uh, and it's all related to this, um, it's all related to this, um, uh, the semiconductor shortage we saw over the past two years. Now that that shortage is finally unwinding and capacity has built up, um, been built up, you know, like with, Joe Biden spending $50 billion on the, the CHIPS Act. I think both China and the European Union are similarly investing huge amounts of money in semiconductor manufacturing. That's just going to make, um, yeah, it sounded good at the time because there was a shortage of, because uh, there was a shortage of chips and prices were very high, but it takes a few years. And then as that capacity is coming online in 2023, 2024, at the same time that demand is decreasing, we could see a you know, a uh, historic semiconductor glut and then prices could, could tank and we could see we could see these stocks get crushed like souffles under sledgehammers even even more than they are already. Yep. So it sounds like there's a very long cold winter ahead for the semiconductor stocks. Um, but as with as with any very cyclical industry, at the end of the winter, uh there there's it will end eventually and there's going to be an upside on the other side. Uh, especially with with some very strong secular drivers behind semiconductors, including autonomous vehicles, uh, data center, and other things of that nature. So there's reason to be hopeful for the very long term if you're holding on to the huge losses, even though after these past few months, it's easy to kind of lose all hope in the markets. So with that, I think we're about we're about at time, James, uh, for this week's uh, podcast. Thank you, thank you, everyone, for watching. Make sure to make sure to tune in next week, next Sunday as well for next week's podcast, and um, we'll see you then. You've been listening to the Wall Street Millennial podcast. Don't miss a minute wherever you go. Wall Street Millennial signing out.